Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly of God podcast. Please join us at 9 11 a.m. at the main campus and 11 a.m. at the Monk's Corner, Remount, and North Charleston campuses. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God blesses you through doing so. All right, welcome today. And it, it, wasn't the Spirit of God awesome this morning? I just love coming and praising the Lord. What a beautiful atmosphere in the house today. What a great day to come and serve Him. It may be rainy and cold and nasty outside, but we've got the Lord' presence in here with us today in the house. We uh, want to welcome each one of you today. If you're watching by way of video, in fact, to this morning, we're actually on our, four, our three other campuses by way of video. So I welcome all of you today as well, for you that are watching. And if you're watching by way of TV or, or video streaming, we welcome you as well today. We're going to have a wonderful morning today as we look at God's Word together. We're in the story. And it's all about finding your place in God's story. And, uh, and, and relating to the characters, there's some incredible characters in the Word of God, and we're relating to their lives and what happened to them and what we, lessons we can learn from their life and their story as we journey along together. And we're actually in week 12. If you have a copy of the book, The Story, if you're new with us, you can pick one up on your way out. I think they're just $10. And uh, follow along with us, and don't worry about trying to catch all the way up. But we're at week 12 this morning in the story. Now, we're going to have a little word association game. You know what I mean by that? I mean that what I want you to do is the first word that pops into your mind, I want you to think it. Don't say it out loud. I want you to think it. And th- then we're going to take a little survey and see how you finish this sentence, okay? So uh, I'm going to do a fill in the blank, and I want you to the first word that pops into your mind. David and... Don't, don't say it out loud. <laughs> Already messed it up. <laughs> David and don't say it. Now, what? Now, how many of you said the name Jonathan? Let me see your hand. You thought Jonathan, David, and Jonathan. Now, that would have been. There, by, there's no right or wrong answer. By the way, you're not being graded on this, and so don't be afraid this morning. No one's going to judge you here today. David and Jonathan. They were best friends. They were knit close together, and that probably would have been a great response. That would have been a wonderful response. How, how many said David and Saul? Anybody see? Anybody said David and Saul, you related to him? A few, okay, a couple of you. Uh, they, they had that struggle that went on forever. Saul, the first king, who was fatally flawed, and he's followed up by David. And so uh, you, you see, for 16 years, David is going to run from King Saul. And so their lives are linked together. How many said Absalom? That that would have been a great answer. That was uh, one of David's sons, and he rebelled against the kingdom. And he will later come, and he will attack uh, David and come after him. And so you might have thought of of Absalom. How many said Goliath? Let me see your hand. Oh, most of you. Wow. Uh, Okay. And and probably because I just preached on that last week, that, that probably helped you along the way. How many said Bathsheba? Let me see your hand. Okay, okay. You know, it's amazing that that forever, David's life is going to be linked, first of all, with his giant killing ability of Goliath, but also Bathsheba. And and there's something about man uh, that I think we, if we're not careful, become a little bit judgmental. And sometimes we'll forget his victories and we'll forget all the good things he did, uh, but we will remember his fall, his downfall, his backsliding with 
Bathsheba. And, and so uh, there's something inside of us that shows we're very quick to judge along the way. But aren't you glad when God forgives, he forgets. And God is able to forgive us from any single sin. David slew Goliath. He was an incredible military leader. He was a shepherd. He wrote many of the Psalms that we have today. But he's most remembered for that affair that he had with Bathsheba and that subsequent cover-up that took place following that. David and Bathsheba. Uh, We're learning some giant lessons on giants And last week, we looked at some giants. All of us face giants. Some of you are facing financial giants. Some of you are facing relational giants. Some of you are facing health giants or emotional giants. We all face giants in our life. And so the question is, how do we deal with those giants? And we learned some great lessons last week. Uh, The first lesson we learned is some giants are simply to be ignored. Just ignore it. All of us will face criticism at some time or another. And you remember in the story how that the brothers criticized David. uh, And and, and you're going to have your endless list of critics who are going to come against you. Uh, And so the lesson there is pick your battles wisely. If you engage everybody who criticizes you, you will always be fighting. The, The second lesson we learn is some giants are to be attacked with faith and the word of God. And we saw how that he went out and all of Israel is focused on Goliath. They're focused on the giant, uh, but David is focused on God. And he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And he goes out and he takes that giant down. And so we've got to, as believers, align our mouth with our faith. The words of our mouth ought to line up with our faith. And we choose who we're going to focus on. And the third lesson was this. Some giants are to be endured with grace and the strength of God. And we saw how that for the next 16 years, David ran for his life from King Saul. And and even though he may have prayed about Saul, that giant was not taken out. And even though he had his chances to kill King Saul, he could not do it in his own might and his own strength because he said, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. And yet we know that while he was on the run, uh, he grew in his faith. Uh, He became very productive. In fact, I believe had not he been chased for 16 years, we would not have had many of the Psalms we have today in the word of God. And God was preparing him to rule and reign over the nation of Israel. And he became a better king because of it. And the last point we shared last week is no giants are giants to the Lord. Put your trust and your faith in God. Trust him for every single move of your life. Now we're going to pick up the story again today. In this story... David has just been, uh, he just died on the battlefield. He actually wasn't killed on the battlefield. He was wounded. And before the enemy came to take him and uh, to torture him and do whatever they were going to do to him, he fell on his own sword and commits suicide right there on the battlefield. David becomes the king. Only he starts out, he's going to be the king of a Hebron. And that's where he's going to rule out of. It's more in the southern area. And he rules there for seven years. It's not till seven years later, he becomes the king of the entire nation of Israel. And he is the greatest military leader Israel would ever know was King David. 
He was an incredible military uh, strategy mind, a brilliant man. He had lived with the Philistines for a time, so he knew all their strategies, all how to fight against them. Brilliant general, brilliant military leader. It was during David's reign that Israel begins to prosper. And God is blessing that nation incredibly, and the kingdom is growing like it never has before. And yet, sometimes it's during prosperity when some of our biggest giants will attack. It's not in the rough times. Sometimes we stumble and fall in the days of prosperity. In the days of blessing. And he takes his focus off the Lord. And even though David had grown in the wilderness, grown spiritually in the wilderness, he grows careless in the palace. First mistake is he decides not to lead his men into battle. This was his gift. This was his strength, was a military general, but he decides not to go. I'm going to take a vacation. I'm I'm not going to fight. Uh, I'm going to hide out at Camp David. I'm hanging back. I'm not going into battle. And so he's at the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's home alone by himself when he should have been out protecting the people. I uh, ran across an article last Tuesday, and uh, it was from the uh, USA Today. And it, it said in the, it's, the article is, what makes the powerful cheat? And I thought, boy, how appropriate that we're talking about David and cheating this week. And uh, the, the, the part of the article says, and he, he's a retired army general who designed and led military surge in Iraq, was the top commander in Afghanistan. He had been deployed much of the, his career until he was named CI director last year. His abrupt resignation amid news of the affair with the married Army Reserve officer brings a new wrinkle to an old story of why yet another powerful man risks so much for a woman. Petraeus joined the list of wayward sons, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Edwards, Mark Sanford, Elliot Spitzer, just to name a few. Isn't it amazing history just kind of keeps repeating itself? And you think of General Petraeus... You think of how he led the armies, and you think about his resignation and the scandal and all that's going on in the press and all that's going on in the media. This is exactly what David does. The only thing is, he thinks he can cover it up. He thinks no one's going to know. And he, his email trails probably better covered up than General Petraeus's. And so uh, it's a sealed letter to Joab. Uh, and so he thought no one's going to know. No one's going to find out. Uh, and everything is fine in David's life until he hears these three words, I am pregnant. He's got it made. I mean, one affair, no one's going to know. A little liaison, uh, Uriah's out to battle. And then those words come back, I am pregnant. And so he continues to cover up. And so during this military campaign, uh, he sends words out to have Uriah exposed on the battlefield. Uh, And Uriah is sent to the front lines uh, and he's killed in battle. And we don't know if it's from enemy fire or uh, friendly fire from the back. But in, in, in any way you look at it, he's killed, he's dead on the the battlefield. And so David does the wonderful, magnanimous thing. He's going to comfort the grieving widow. And he brings her into his palace. And he says, you're going to be my wife. And I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to raise that child, which was his child. And and the cover-up seems to work. And the baby's born. And all is well until 
finally, second, turn to the, go to the next chapter, chapter 12. Remember last week I, I read the verse to you, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that verse came out when, when Samuel is going to choose God's next anointed king and Saul's out watching the sheep and all these bigger, better, stronger brothers come passing through the line and that's not the one. And then he chooses David and he says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Well, I want to tell you, it also works in reverse. He also sees the evil in our hearts. He sees when our hearts get hard, when they get calloused. He sees when we don't repent. And, and, and God is not done with David. Failure is not final with God. His mercies endure forever. And he keeps reaching out. And so he sends a prophet. He sends a messenger because he loves David. Listen to this message. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up, and with him and his children he shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. Prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, uh, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity on him. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. The reality is this. Sometimes, most of the times, I am my biggest giant who needs to surrender to God. I'm the giant I battle against. It's, it's me. It's me who needs to surrender to God's will and God's ways. Uh, some of the most destructive giants in my life are right inside of here. It's me. Goliath couldn't take David down. Saul even though he chases him and tries to hound him, could not take David down. The wilderness could not destroy David. It could not take him out. But it was David's own choices that brought the most harm and destruction to his life and subsequently to his family. Amen. Tragic story is for one minute of pleasure for one moment's pleasure david compromises everything he loses his integrity he leaves lives broken behind him in the wake of his action and although god grants forgiveness david would live forever with the consequences of his sin god forgives God's grace is incredible, uh, but I want you to think about it before the next time that temptation comes your way. Uh, even though God does forgive, uh, there are consequences of our actions. Uh, be not deceived. Uh, God is not mocked. Uh, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. As we follow David's line, it's going to end in some just very difficult family situation because of David's failure. You, you, you wonder, you ever ask yourself, why when David has everything, by this time he had several wives, he already married the widow Abigail, he already had Michael, he has other women in his life. Why, why, why does he do this? 
Why does a man after God's own heart do this and give in to this giant of lust inside of him? I, I uh, got a few more things to read from this article that I thought were interesting. This is the take on Petraeus. Risk takers tend to believe they control their, their destiny or fate. Says Frank Farley, psychologist of Temple University who studies such behavior. The risk-taking personality has a bold quality. It's at the heart of great leadership. And sometimes it overrides what many Americans would call common sense. Mira Christianbaum says this. Power and success give people a sense of invulnerability. She says... A lot of guys like Petraeus have worked awfully hard, and yes, they have a lot to show for it, but day to day, mostly what they face is more hard work. Where's the big reward? An affair can seem like a long-deserved perk. Crumb says the fact that there was an email trail between the two demonstrates a level of arrogance and a feeling that you're above the law. To me, when I think about David, he's the king. As the king, he can have anybody he wants. And so he sets himself above the law and for a moment's pleasure trades it all in for an affair with Bathsheba. Above the law. Now, what do you do when you are the giant, when it's inside of you? How, how do we respond? You know, I think there's three ways a lot of people respond. Is, is one, they excuse it. And they say, you know what? Uh, well, that, that's just the way I am. I can't help myself. I, I, I'm just an angry person inside. And so that's how I respond with anger. And that's who I am. And that's my personality. And what happens is, as long as we excuse it, we will continue in the cycle of dysfunction, uh, of alcohol, abuse, anger, lust, immorality. And it's a sad thing to remain a giant. And you never deal with it because you're always making excuses for your behavior. That's an incorrect way to deal with those giants. The second thing is self-help. I'll work real hard. I'll, I'll try to be better. And, uh, and so we'll blame somebody else. And I'll try to improve my action. And, uh, but you, the problem is, as long as you are trying to improve yourself on your own strength, you can never be all that God wants you to be. You are simply trying harder. And you can't defeat the inner giants that are inside of you in your own strength. You can't do it. We can't do it without the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will fall. We will fail again and again and again. And the third thing is many people just simply live in this land of regret. And so they have that regret they, that we know what we did, but we, we don't leave it with God. And so we have these regrets, and we live in self-pity, and we live in regret, and the whole rest of our life is sabotaged because of one failure, one mistake we made some time ago. Now, all these are very poor responses to the giants inside of us. God is good, and God is big. And the only response is to go to Him and surrender. And say, God, I blew it. God, I failed you. God, I stumbled. God, I am a sinner. God, I need help. It's the only response. The only thing we can do. It's the only way to defeat that internal giant inside of all of us is that word surrender. God, I surrender to you.
There's two ways we've got to surrender. Number one, we surrender through humble and repentance before God. Humble, humility, repentant before God. And this is what we see in David. David immediately repents he, uh, when he's confronted by Nathan. And although he's caught in this web of deception and this web of murder, when he's called out, he doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't blame somebody else. He doesn't hide it. He begins to surrender himself to God and he repents. It would be hard-pressed to say that King Saul's sins were worse than David's sins. The difference is surrender. Saul excused his actions. He blamed everybody else around him. He rationalized every sin he did. But David, on the other hand, is humble and he is repentant. And because he is, he will find grace with God. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is a psalm that is written out of the heart of David after he's been confronted by Nathan. And so it is right on time. And uh, verse 1, I can't read it all. The whole chapter is a chapter of repentance before God. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. O wash away all my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sins. Uh, Listen, when you surrender to God, don't try to convince God how good you are. It's not going to work because God looks at the heart. We simply throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, I have failed you. God, I have sinned. God, I need your grace. God, please forgive me. Earlier, David ran towards the giant Goliath. Takes that sling and knocks him out. Uh, This time he runs to God and he runs to the mercy of God. But I've got good news. If you'll surrender, if you'll run to God, God is there and he'll open up his arms. And I don't care what you've done. He'll forgive you and cleanse you. Run to God. You've got to own up to it. When the kids were small, we, uh, my wife and I heard a thud at the bottom of the steps And we got there and Jason was at the bottom of the steps and he was just bawling and squalling and we were worried he was hurt. And uh, Chad's standing right at the top, his older brother. And we said to Chad, Chad, did you throw your brother down the steps? And he looks back at me with his big eyes and says, no, I didn't do it. When he had just done it. There's something about Each one of us, there's something about that sin nature that wants to throw the blame on somebody else, that wants to cover it up, that wants to hide our sins. Uh, But the Bible says, he who covers his sins is not wise. And so there's got to be that point where we come before God and we surrender. But the good news is God stands ready to forgive. On the other side of surrender is forgiveness is healing, is restoration, is joy. And you get down to the end of Psalm 51 and verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I will tell you, God will do that. And when he takes that load of sin off of you uh, and he removes it as far as the east is from the west uh, and you run into the arms of the Lord, uh, he'll wrap his arms around you. Uh, That's what the blood of Calvary was all about. uh, And he's able to restore back to you again the joy of the Lord. got to surrender to the Lord and humble yourself before him. And then the second thing that we need to surrender of when we get into these relational problems is we need to have a humble attitude and a behavioral change before other people. 
You know, it's easy to humble ourselves before God. You don't see God. So we can go to prayer anytime all by ourselves, and no one will ever know. And we say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. And we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. But it's very difficult to go to someone else and humble ourselves and say, I've sinned against you and I've failed you and I have blown it with you. To totally deal with the inner giants, we've got to not only surrender our hearts to God, but we've got to humbly own up to our failures to other people that we have hurt along the way. Even though David is forgiven the consequences for his sin, uh, Nathan said, the child you've conceived will die. And so he's going to face consequences for what he did. Yes, God's grace was there. Yes, God's mercy was there. But because he failed... He would lose that son. But the second consequence was this. What David did to Uriah in secret, Nathan says is going to be done to you in public. And someone he trusts, his very own son, is going to sin publicly before David. And there's going to be a rebellion in his own kingdom. The level of pride never left David's home. And even though he's an incredible warrior, he's a wonderful songwriter, he's a prosperous king, uh, he's a powerful man, he never deals with what God wanted him to do, and that was his own family. He was a lousy dad. He was a lousy father. He had nothing left for his family. And when you study the family of David, it's a family that is spiraling out of control. It is very dysfunctional. One of David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister. David does nothing about it. Now, why can't David do anything about his own son raping his half-sister? Why? Because David lacked moral authority. Because he was guilty of the very own sin himself when he has intercourse with Bathsheba. And so instead of dealing with his son, instead of dealing with the issue because of his own adultery, because of his own moral compromise, he keeps his mouth shut. He never says a word. He has another son by the name of Absalom. Absalom sees the injustice to his sister and he sees the silence of David. And so for two years, Absalom broods over this hate inside of himself and he nurtures that bitterness and he allows it to grow. And in two years later, he kills his brother Amnon and slays him in cold blood. Afterwards, there's incredible resentment between Absalom towards his father and, and David, and it leads ultimately to Absalom's rebellion against his father, David. The story of Absalom is not a story of power-hungry son. It's a story of David reaping what he had sown. David took Bathsheba in secret, commits adultery with her. Absalom drives David from Jerusalem and on the rooftop of the palace, in full view, rapes ten of David's concubine for all the nation of Israel to watch and witness. You see, we don't sin in a vacuum. Every time we sin, someone else is affected, another life is touched. And David's sins had ripple effects uh, that would affect him for the very next generation and other generations to come. Uh, and although he is forgiven, he lives with the consequences of his moral failure. 
He surrenders to God, but he never humbles himself and changes before his family. David's earlier failure was the sin of commission. He commits adultery. He commits murder. David's later later failure was the sin of omission. It's pride, it's inactivity, and it's silence. And the only way we can slay that giant of pride is with humility. Taking responsibility for our own actions. Having the difficult conversations with those we've hurt along the way. uh, Those that we've broken relationship with. Those we've broken fellowship with. uh, It's having those difficult conversations. It's apologizing. The only way to deal with pride is in humility. I want to give you three lessons on humility. Jot these down. And this is where the practical application kicks in. Follow me here. Number one, in humility, swallow pride on the front side rather than live with regret on the back side. Swallow your pride on the front side rather than living with regret on the back side. You see, we tend to fight to be right rather than fight to make everything right. We want to back our opinion. We want to back our viewpoint. We want to justify our actions. We want to justify our feelings and our emotions. And so we fight to maintain our ability to be right uh, rather than fight to make things right by apologizing, by confronting one another, by speaking the truth in love, uh, by dealing with the issues, by working through them together. Nine years went by after Absalom kills Amnon before the rebellion occurred. Now look at what happens in those nine years. The first three years, Absalom, after he kills his brother, flees to Gesher. Then he is brought back to David. He's brought back to the palace, to Jerusalem. But for the next two years in Jerusalem, David won't see him. He won't deal with him. He won't talk to him for the next two years. So now five years have gone by between the separation of Absalom and his father, David. Then they have this surface reconciliation, and yet for the next four years, what does Absalom do? The Bible says he sat at the gates of Jerusalem and he stole the hearts of the people. And so he is planning for four years a massive takeover of the kingdom, a massive overthrow, a massive rebellion, and, and, and eventually the whole story ends with Absalom dying on the battlefield. And you get this regret at the end in 2 Samuel 18, 33. It says the king was shaken and he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He lives with regret because he never, ever swallowed his pride and made things right with his son. And, and, and if, you, if you don't swallow your pride on the front side, you will always deal with regret on the back side. And families are literally torn apart by this area of pride. Marriages are torn apart by pride. About no one wanting to say, they're wrong, they're guilty, it's your fault, it's somebody else. Children are alienated from parents because of pride. And David never has that conversation. And you you see the end of the story. He's weeping and crying for his son. David only thought in terms of winning and losing. 
In a relational conflict, no one wins. That that should have got a little bit more. Let me run you by again. David only thought in terms of winning and losing. In a relational conflict, nobody wins. It's a good place to say amen one more time. In a relational conflict, nobody wins. I don't know what it is. A little quiet out there. Because David never had the hard conversation with Absalom, he would live with regret the rest of his life. And he would mourn Absalom's death until the day he died. The second lesson about humility and our humility in dealing with one another is it involves patient and kindness to tear down the emotional walls and build those healthy relational bridges once again. It takes patience. It takes kindness. It does not necessarily happen overnight. The giant of pride will keep us from going to others. You see, what happens is I encounter the forgiveness of God in a moment. The moment I say, God, I'm sorry. The moment I say, God, forgive me. In that moment, I am cleansed uh, and I am brought back into right relationship with God. uh, But building bridges uh, with those we've hurt or those who have hurt us along the way, it takes patience. It takes kindness. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to build trust and love and kindness in those relationships with one another. Now, let me give you a test. I'm going to give you a test to see if pride is still inside of you. And please don't give me a show of hands here. If you have a lot of impatience, you're probably still dealing with pride. I'll run it by you again. If you are a very impatient person, you are probably still still dealing with pride. Because pride is the opposite of love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says the first characteristic of love is love is patient. And if you're impatient with other people and you're impatient with, with their actions and what they're doing, and if you're impatient with their behavior, it's probably because you still have pride in your own heart and in your own life. You see, what happens is often is we'll get it right with God and we'll get it square with God and we'll say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. And we'll move on like nothing ever happened. But then we get frustrated with others uh, when they don't change. And they don't welcome us back with open arms. And we've made our peace with God, but we haven't made our peace with them because we're still dealing with pride. Humility deals with changing ourselves and trusting others with God. If you can't trust others with God, if you're impatient with them, you're stealing with pride in your own heart, in your own life. People's, let me, let me illustrate it for you. People will spend years tearing down their marriage. And then one finally says, you know what? I've had enough. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And, and we want it fixed in a weekend. We want it all worked out and all done in a weekend. And then when it doesn't work, we get frustrated and angry. I, I've, I've counseled ladies over the years. And I've, and I've, I've known ladies who this has happened to. They, they, they would live with an abusive husband. They would live with a very hard, angry man. And they would hang on to that marriage and hang on and hang on. And they have been ignored and they have been treated harshly. 
And finally, the lady says, you know what? The love is gone. All the love has been killed in my heart. It's been killed in my life. The the love is gone, and I'm leaving him. And they leave. They exit. And then the husband all of a sudden wakes up. He says, I'm about to lose my wife. I'm about to lose 15 years of marriage. It's about to be all thrown away. And then he cries out, and he turns to God, and he gets saved. And gloriously. And God touches his heart and saves him and all that. But then he can't understand why his wife doesn't welcome him back with open arms. You spent 15 years tearing the marriage down, but you want her to turn like a switch and turn it on in a week. I'm telling you, that that has happened on many, many occasions. You've got to build that bridge over time. And it takes patience and kindness and persistence. And God can give you help and God can do a miracle, but it takes time. The third thing, if we're going to walk in humility in our relationships with one another, create change, even if it's only peace and healing in your own heart. Create change, even if it only occurs in your own heart. You see, when when hope seems crushed and there's no response, all you can simply do is trust in God to heal and restore you. If the pain is not dealt with, what will happen is, especially in divorce, if that pain is not dealt with, you will carry all that hurt, all that pain, all that baggage into the next relationship. And you may not be able to change your wife. You may not not be able to change your husband. That bridge may be torn apart and exploded and there's pride and arrogance and no softening. They may move on. They may find somebody else. They may marry somebody else. They may go on with their life. They may move on. But if you don't allow God to change your heart and soften you, You'll take all that junk into the next relationship and you'll start the same cycle all over again. Do the right thing. Swallow your pride. Resolve those differences. Deal with others with patience and kindness. And God will begin to heal you. He'll begin to heal your heart uh, and your heart can be changed because I've got good news for you. Even though some relationships, it seems like they're so, you know, relationships, the Bible says it happens because of the hardness of the heart. And some will get so hard, they will not change. They will not come back. They, it's gone. It's done. It's over. And so the, their heart becomes so callous. It's not that God can't do a miracle. It's that their heart becomes hard. And they can't hear God speak anymore. And they're so far from the Lord. And they're so far out of his will. And they can't hear him speak and deal with them anymore. And so that hard heart keeps that relationship from being mended again. But even if you are in that kind of relationship, God can still do a work inside of you. And God still has a plan and a future and a hope for you. You stay patient and humble and open before God. And let God do the miracle in your own motions, in your own heart, in your own pain. God can minister to you. Hallelujah. Biggest giants 
that I deal with are right here. Right here. It's not criticism. It's not, it's not Goliaths. It's not major obstacles. It's not major challenges along the way. Those will come at times. It's right in here. My own pride, my own anger, my own lust, my own arrogance. It's right inside of here. And so we've got to be humble before God and say, God, I need you. God, I need your help. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. But we also got to humble ourselves before one another. David made the first step, and he got it right with God. But he never, ever healed the deep family wounds that remained. And it brought incredible heartache and regret for the rest of David's life. And so we've got to make our relationships right with one another. We can't leave it hanging out there, and we can't leave it to chance. But it's not about who's right. It's about making things right. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So I swallow my pride, and I go to you, and we embrace, and we cry, and we have those tough conversations, and we forgive each other, and we move on. And that's in every single one of our relationships. And if they won't receive you, if they won't hear you, if they won't allow that to happen, then you let God change your heart. And you say, God, I'm going to love them, and I'm going to pray with them, and I'm moving on. And I'm going to embrace them and I'm forgiving them. And, and you let God do a work inside of you. But that giant of pride's got to come down. We've got to humble ourselves before God and before one another. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace and your love and your mercy. I Thank you, God, that you are able to forgive us and cleanse us no matter what we have done. I thank you that you're alive today and you're in the house and your presence and spirit is here today. So, Lord, bring men and women back to you. Restore hurts, restore brokenness, restore relationships, I pray. And I ask it in your mighty name. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.